the man who founded, maybe you're familiar with this organization, it's called uh, Voice of the Martyrs, was, fun, was founded by a name named Richard Wurmbrandt. Uh, he was uh, a missionary who was taken, he was beaten multiple times and imprisoned, and uh, I was a believer, right? This is not too long ago. He, and he tells the story of a monk who was interviewed in Italy, uh, who was taking these vows upon himself to like, live a life away from people so he doesn't um, fall into sin and habitual silence and seclusion. But I guess taking an interview wasn't breaking the vow. But anyway, I digress. And the interviewer asked him this question about his vows to the, for the way he's living. Here's the question. What if it proves that Christianity isn't true in the end? How will you and the monks in your order feel about having spent a life in utter silence and seclusion? So the answer to the question, right, is you're doing all these great things to the Lord, you believe, right? If Christianity wasn't true, how would you feel about living that way? Here's the answer that, that this man gave. He said this. Holiness, silence, and sacrifice are beautiful in themselves. Even without the promise of reward, I still will have, I still will have used my life well. How would you evaluate that response? If Christianity were false, is living a life in line with Christian doctrine, um, holiness, uh, seeking to be upright, is that a, a life that we, just, we should do regardless? Well, Christianity is it's, it's false, so we should therefore live like a Christian. Shouldn't we seek those things? I think maybe a good way to help us answer that question rightly is what do you think the apostles would have done differently? So if you, if you read the book of Acts, as I feel like I mentioned almost every time during this, this series, what would, how would they have acted if Jesus was still dead? Would there even be a book of Acts? Would there be any epistles like Matthew, or I'm sorry, like Ephesians and Philippians and Galatians? One commentator says it this way, that the resurrection is mentioned about 145 times in the book of Acts. So it was that crucial, and it must be crucial for us. Here, here's a question I often ask people. Um, if you've ever talked to someone about the gospel, and they're very, very, uh, maybe hostile, or just like, yeah, I'm just not going to give you my time. I'm just going to tune you out and argue with you. A good question to ask someone is this. Friend, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And usually if they argue and say no, then they don't really care about what you're talking about. They just want to argue. But if they say yes, it means they actually care about truth. So brothers, this must be the way that we think. If Christianity is not true, if Jesus is still dead, being a Christian is pointless, isn't it? What are we doing it for? What's the reason? What are you hoping for, right? So my desire this morning is to help you have a, a passion for Christ that maybe has gone cold. If Christ has been raised, then our, then our Christian life must have a, a fresh strength to it, right? A, a strong joy to it, right? This is, what, this is what made the book of Acts just explode. If Jesus was still dead, they wouldn't do that. They would just sit at home and nothing, right? If he's dead, then what's the point? So these truths, just simple things like this, are what propel a church to grow in depth and in width, right? Propels our holiness, our evangelism, the way we worship, the way we think about Christ, our assurance, right? If Christ hasn't been raised, who gives a rip, right? Bible just, we, we just read what Paul, Paul just said that. But if Christ has been raised, then we have a, a reason, right? If you remember the last few, the last few weeks, we've been going through just Paul's account of the gospel saying that, Oh, I've met him and so have all the other apostles and all the disciples. 
We talk about having humility because of what Paul talked about in verses 8 through 11. But today we're going to talk more about Paul's actually gave us, he's going to give us three negative applications. So he's going to say negative things that should give you positive obedience. Kind of funny how that works. But if Christ has not been raised, he's going to apply it in three ways. And I hope you'll see that very clearly. Look at verse Verses 12 through 14, the first, the first application is this, that we believe in vain. And he has two things, I think, to see here. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? It's very simple what Paul's saying, right? Just remember, who is Paul writing the letter of 1 Corinthians to? Well, Cale, it would be the Corinthians. That's the correct answer, right? It's Christians, right? It's believers in a church, right? And what's strange is that, notice what he says, some of you, so some of you believers in this church, you're saying things that are false. There's false doctrine, even in Corinth, right? He's addressing them, he's already addressed this briefly in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13 and following, about living carelessly if there is no, if there is no resurrection. This is, a, this is a dark doctrine, isn't it? Imagine having a church saying, yeah, Jesus is even alive, who even cares? And that's, that's evil, right? It's crept into the church and it's now muddying the waters, right? Uh, where did it come from? Uh, we don't really know. Um, we know what Pharisees are, right, from the Bible. But there are also Sadducees. Well, they believe different things. A good way to remember it is you think of Sadducees. When you think of them, think of it's sad to see them because they don't believe in, in the resurrection. Matthew 22, verse 23 says they don't believe in it. So maybe it came from them. Maybe it came from Greek philosophy. Acts 17, 32 talks about the people in the city didn't believe in the resurrection. 2 Timothy 2, verse 18 says that there were certain believers who also didn't believe in it. That they're saying, oh, it's already happened. So somehow it's in Corinth. It's in the church, right? It's not just going into the church. It's now flowing out of the church. Isn't that, isn't that alarming to you? That the culture has disrupted the church so bad, they're acting like the world. They're talking like the world, right? False doctrine has an appeal of truth, right? It sounds really sweet. I think for us as Christians, rarely does false doctrine ever sound super, super blunt, right? Like if someone, someone would come to you and say, Jesus isn't God, what would you say? All right, weirdo. No, that's false, right? But do people approach things that way? No, it's, it's very subtle, right? It's, it's smooth. It's, that sounds right. I mean, they're, they're using the Bible after all. It's, I could be convinced, right? It slithers in. It flatters, right? Uh, think of the that Satan's tempting of Adam and Eve. What did he do? Did he say, hey, don't listen to God? What did he do? He twisted, right? He twisted words they heard. And well, he didn't tell you the full story, right? He didn't delete, he twisted. So friends, false doctrine always has a hint of truth to it. It's like leaven, it just leavens the whole lump, right? None of us would ever claim to be a false teacher or have false doctrine. Therefore, we need the local church as brothers to, to reprove us, to encourage us to say, Brother, what you just said there is actually wrong. Can I, can, I, can, I, can I help you understand that? That's a good thing to do, right? Psalm 119, verse 104 says this. Through your precepts, through, through the Lord's word, right, through his law, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. It takes great courage and great love to reprove someone that you love, doesn't it? But what would be more loving, to just leave them in their unbelief and foster, or to approach them and say, brother, what are you saying? That's just not right. It's important that you get this right. That's loving. It's unloving to let the, the gangrene grow, isn't it? That's hateful. John MacArthur said it this way, that tolerance towards people is a good biblical virtue. 
but tolerance towards false teaching is sin. It's loving to admonish your brother, isn't it? And they have false doctrine in this congregation. Look at verse 13. He's, he's talking about what? It's talking about the resurrection, right? If this is true, look at verse 13. If there is no, if there is no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. So Paul's saying, you've just upped it. That means that Jesus is dead. That's, this is serious doctrine. This is a big, this is fundamentally denying the gospel, right? Now, there are, just a quick word, and then we'll move on to the next thing here, but we can disagree on doctrinal things here, right? Yeah, we can. There's, we can disagree on things, but how core is it, right? Uh, if you've ever been to the, the hospital before, like in the ER, let's say you got, I don't know, you drove a nail into your hand. I don't know, something ouchy, something bad. But then someone comes in with a gunshot wound. Who's getting treated first? I know you're shot. We're getting the guy with the nail, right? <laughs> Just wait your turn. <clears throat> no, that's baloney, right? That's called triage, right? We're ranking things in their necessity. Well, same with Christianity. We can disagree on certain things like women's roles in the church or end times views or even baptism. We can disagree on how those things look. But if we disagree on what's core to who Christ is and what he did, then we must call, no, 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 we we can't do that. We, do, we, just, we fundamentally cannot do that. We can disagree on a small thing. That's okay. But Paul's saying this is urgent. This is triage, right? There's a story about a, a Puritan pastor named Richard Rogers in the 16th century who was riding on a horseback uh, with a friend of his who was asking him about the Bible. They're talking about doctrine back and forth. And the question was very annoyed by him. He's like, why are you being so precise? You're very annoying about this. And the pastor responded to him very simply, Oh, sir, I serve a precise God. So we, we should treat doctrine, there should be precision. We should want precision, right? That's what Paul is saying. And this is going way out of control. Look at verse 14. Paul then applies it to them. So the second thing is there will be, where there's false belief, now there's false practice. Look at verse 14. This is huge. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. Doctrine will always impact your doing, won't it? Always. What you believe is what you do, right? We wear seatbelts for a reason. We believe they're actually going to work, so we're going to wear a seatbelt, right? If you're not, put your seatbelt on, okay? But we believe it, right? But what Paul just said is jolting. Let's read it again. Then our preaching is in vain, and your faith, it might even say useless or worthless, that's jolting, isn't it? Whoa, Paul, that's a radical... Should we even preach? Yeah. This isn't the kind of truth that swims in the waters that we live in here. Uh, we live in something that people call like postmodern thinking. What that means is every truth is valid. You believe this. I believe that. Contradictory. Doesn't matter. No such thing as truth. We just believe what we want. It's all just like chocolate. You like chocolate. I like vanilla. Who cares, right? But Paul throws down the gauntlet. If Jesus is still dead, bury the church. Fire the pastor. Sell the building. Close the seminary. Cancel the meetings. Torture Bible. This is serious. Paul means business here, right? If Christ has not been raised, there is no urgency. There's no necessity. There's no reality. There's no warnings. There's no wrath. There's no judgment. There's nothing. We, we would not have good news gospel. We would have good law. Just behave. Why? Just, just behave. But we don't live that way, do we? We all live according to what we believe. This is the litmus test for our beliefs, isn't it? 
Our sinfulness and our flesh, however, they will clog the pipes of this, right? So I believe Christianity is true. It should flow into my heart and go out of my hands. But we, our sin clogs the pipes, right? we got a plumber here. He knows all about clogs. It's going to clog the pipes, right? Let me give you an example. Uh, last week, I'm, I'm way back from work. Um, I, I went to the gas station, not for gas, but boy, I wanted a cherry Pepsi. Not regular Pepsi. I wanted cherry. And boy, do I like it. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to hand a track out to a guy who's out there. Talk about the gospel. There'll be somebody there probably. Uh, there was a guy there. There were about two, and then there were about three. And I just sat in my car. I should go out there. No. I can't. I'm scared. They'll think I'm stupid. They'll, make, they'll ignore me. It won't go well. I was acting as if Christ has not been raised, as if judgment wasn't urgent, as if he wouldn't spend eternity somewhere. Let me ask you a question. Do you live this way? Brothers, may we gather each Lord's Day believing that Jesus actually is alive. Live this week as if he actually has risen. May we preach and live and read and think and spend and parent and work and plan and vacation and everything as if Christ has been risen. One man said this way, the resurrection of Christ is the amen of all God's promises. So if Christ has not been raised, then we do believe in vain, but he has been raised, so we don't believe in vain. Do you see the, do you see the flip? That's Paul's first negative application. Secondly, we misrepresent God. Again, two things. Look at verses 15 and 16. We misrepresent God. Verse 15, Paul even Paul just keeps pushing further, right? We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Again, Paul's going even further about this, right? It's this central to the truth of Christianity. If Jesus is still dead, then who cares? And we're lying about who God is. What a tragedy that would be to think we know who God is and then just... Yeah, we know he's dead. We're just going to pretend we, we got the answer. It doesn't matter. We just believe it. We'd be lying about God. That's a cosmic, awful tragedy, isn't it? Is there anything bigger at stake in the world than you knowing who God is? That's it, right? And we know this. Consider the words of John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the what? I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. That's Jesus is saying, everyone else is wrong. There's no other options, right? Acts 4.12 again says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. This is what we call the exclusivity of Jesus, meaning Jesus closes every other door. You can't get to heaven through any other way. It's through me. Everyone else is wrong. It's Christ only. Jesus says that himself, right? So therefore, we realize that there is a narrow way. There's a narrow door and a narrow way. We believe every other worldview, every other religion, every other faith must be wrong. Have you felt the gravity of that? Everybody's wrong. Here's what happens, though. We'll, we'll say, yeah, and that's right. That, that's a good belief to have, but we'll go, man, how do I even, how do I even talk about that to somebody? Like, aren't I being kind of like judgmental or closed-minded or like a jerk? How do I even talk about that? Let the objections come. Let me give you an example. The nature of truth is exclusive. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, when you're in school and you're told, hey, two plus two is four, and you put five, do you get marked wrong? Boy, I sure hope you still do. You should, right? 
What does that mean? It means that every other answer is wrong, and there's one answer, right? If you have an apple in your hand, it can't be an orange, it can't be an avocado, and it can't be broccoli. Excludes every other option. Truth, by necessity, excludes everybody else, right? But if Christ has not been raised, we are telling everyone else that they are misrepresenting God. So to be a Christian then means we take, we make serious claims about eternal things, don't we? We mean it. So how do we know that we are not misrepresenting God? Well, Paul has spent 11 verses saying, we've seen him, we've, we know it, we've seen him, we know it, right? The scriptures say, we've seen him. But even better, friends, the good news is that God has not left us to just figure it out. Christianity is not just a religion where we say, well, we think this is what it is, we're just going to take a guess. We believe that God has actually come down and spoken to us, right? In Christ, that he is, the, he is actually God himself. So therefore, friends, something must be said about how we then represent God in the world. How do you represent God in the world? Do you misrepresent him? How do you represent God to your family at home or to your coworkers or to your children? This is what God is like by how I live. To join Charles Spurgeon's church uh, is very, very interesting. Uh, you would talk to the, to the pastors. They had multiple patterns. Not just Spurgeon, they had a lot of elders. You would talk to the elders, interview you about your conversion doctrine, and then they would visit your workplace and talk to your friends at work. Hey, does this, does this sound like your friend at work? Did this, does he do anything like that? They interview your friends about you. Would that shock you? When you speak to your grandchildren about sin... You must not misrepresent God to them. You need to, be, you need to tell them the truth. You must tell them about their condition, about sin, about the culture, about men and women. If you're in school, remember that Jesus Christ is alive. If he really is risen, he will defend you. You speak truth, let him take care of the rest. He's arisen, right? He's the king. He can defend you. We must rather fear the Lord rather than waffle on these issues. The disciples we make are a direct result of the God that we represent. People that we think should act like us, they will. How are they acting? Well, probably how you act. And let me remind you, this is also the standard that we should hold our pastors to, myself, and our elders and deacons in the church. Let me tell you what Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verses 26 and 27. Paul says this is his final greeting to the church. He says this, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So the true test of a pastor, of an elder, of a deacon is, do they shade? Well, we don't want to handle that. That's sin, but we, I don't want to get involved. I'm backing up. The rep, our job is to represent God to you. Are we doing that? If not, shame on us and encourage us, brother, what you're doing here is off. Not just what we believe, but what we represent, what we do. Secondly, we give a false hope. Look at verse 16. For, so again, because, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Again, we give a false hope. Hey, Jesus can forgive you from your sins, but he's dead, so I mean, maybe he can't. We don't, he can't. So we're just going to give you a false hope. Well, that would be a tragedy. Paul's reminding them again as he did just in verse 13. This is the implication, right? It would be evil for us to convince people to believe in a Christ that's actually dead. They can't do anything. 
that would be a tragedy. That would be a great evil. So friends, it is our duty then and our joy to give sinners true assurance that Christ is trustworthy. You can trust him. You really can. He's alive. That he's risen in power, seated at the right hand of the Father. So we offer to sinners a real Christ. Not just some imaginative idea, just not some vain hope, but a real Christ who really lives, who really frees sinners. Who saves the worst of sinners because Christ has been risen. So when you talk to someone, remember, this is actually true. If they reject it, they're in, this, is, this is hell to pay. They have wrath over them. You must think that way. Have you ever heard of the Jefferson Bible before? Thomas Jefferson has a, a translation now, apparently. <laughs> happened a long time ago. Uh, he removed all of the supernatural things about Jesus in the Bible. So as you can imagine, it's much smaller than your Bible. But he left only the moral teachings, the things that he liked. He was a deist. And here's how his Bible actually ends. This is the last sentence of his Bible. Quote, There they laid Jesus and rolled a great stone to the mouth of the tomb and departed. If that's how Christianity ends for us, why are we here? But thank God that is not where it ends, friends. Thank God that we don't misrepresent God by being, but we act, He actually is alive. We actually represent Him rightfully and truthfully through His Word. Thirdly, we waste our lives. Look at verses 17 through 19. We waste our lives. So if we believe in vain, we misrepresent God, and now we waste our lives. First, look at verse 17. We are still in our sins. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Man, don't you, wish, don't you wish we talk like this? Like Christians talk with this amount of, like, fire? I mean, this is intense. If he's not dead, we're toast. If he's still dead, we're toast. I mean, Paul's he's, just, he's not gentle. He's being truthful, right? The, ens- the essence of the gospel, the Christian message, is God forgives sinners. But if he's still in the grave, he can't. All other religions can only offer, if true, attempts, right? You try your best. You clean yourself up. Stop doing bad things. Maybe God will weigh the scales and you'll be, in, you'll be all right. Maybe. We don't actually know. But Christianity offers no such thing. We don't believe that. We believe the only way a holy God can be with sinful people is if we are holy as he is holy. That's the only way, right? We can't just, well, we'll just be as we are. It can't work that way. So what is the good news of the gospel? It's very simple. Jesus pays our debt and provides our righteousness. Look, look, I want you to hear from Romans chapter 4 in verse 25 to, verse, to chapter 5, verse 1. So two verses. I want you to hear this. This is why it matters that Jesus rose for you. Who, Jesus, was delivered up, so to the cross, for our trespasses, namely our sins, and raised for our what? Justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have peace with God, not because we do right things, but because Christ lived rightly, perfectly, totally, forever on earth. 
And that's credit to us. So if the cross takes away our sin, right? The resurrection gives us re- uh, righteousness, right? Verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 1. Just I want, I, want, I want to read it. I want you to hear this. Romans 5, verse 1. Listen to this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. You have peace. There's no wrath for you if you're a Christian. Not even a smidge. It's gone. And only Christianity offers that. He takes our judgment, we get his righteousness. There is therefore how much condemnation? Do you know? None. Zero. None. Gone. If he's not been raised, we will inevitably go down to death. So the reason we are in our sins, catch this, this is Christianity, this is very important because of distinction. The reason we are in our sins is not because of external factors. I don't sin because my job is difficult, because my, my wife is mean. She's not, just an example. I don't sin because my kids are rowdy. I don't sin because I'm tired, right? We're not sinners because we sin. Rather, as R.C. Sproul says, we sin because we are what? Sinners. It's not everyone else's fault. It's me. I'm to blame, right? It's me. Being in your sins, therefore, in, this, in uh, 1 Corinthians, doesn't refer to moral behavior, but to your condition, to your guilt, right? Our nature before God. This matters that we get this, that being a Christian is not just doing right things. That doesn't right any wrong. You need to be righted first with God, and then you respond in obedience, right? Ephesians chapter 2 says it this way, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead in your sins, right? Thus, you need a spiritual resurrection. You need to be raised from the dead spiritually. Verses 2 and 3 say we, we follow the course of the world. We are, at, we are sons of disobedience. Children of the devil, I mean, Paul's just like, you're not just bad, you're bad, bad. You're, you're dead, right? By nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the good news is verses 2, or is verse 2, 4, and 5 of Ephesians. It says this, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Do you hear that? That's huge. Do you see? He raises you out of your sins and up with Christ. That's what getting converted means, right? If Christ has not been raised, we are still dead in our what? Sin. You have no shot, right? But because Jesus is alive, he can raise us by his mercy. This text mentions God's love and his mercy and his grace. It's not because we're lovely. It's because he's loving, right? So our, therefore, our outward manifestation then of being in Christ and raised with him is that we shall be like him, model after him, have fellowship with him, right? Meaning Christians are no longer in their sins. It's a sin to be in your sins. Just sit there. Yeah, whatever. It's a habit. Can't break it. Just keep on sinning. Christians have no friendship with sin. We don't cuddle it, play with it, put it in the backyard later, bring it out later. We don't greet the sins that Jesus died for. The question you need to ask yourself is, have you divorced yourself from a sinful life? 
Romans 7 talks about Jesus freeing us from this marital affair we have with sin, and now we belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead. That, that's the Christian life. Here's the good news. If Christ is in you, you cannot be in your sins. If Christ is in you, you won't want to be. Do you catch the difference? You can't because you don't want to be. Like, why would I want to be in that? I hate it. Because Christ is, a, is sweeter than sin, isn't he? He's a better master. His wages are better. His ways are better. His promises are sweeter. Sin just lies to you. It gives you death for its wages. It doesn't care. And yet as Christians, don't you find yourself... As a believer, don't you realize you're actually worse than you thought you were? <laughs> That's how it is, right? You get converted, yeah, I'm, I'm bad. And the longer you're a believer, you go, man, I'm actually worse than I thought I was. I'm not just dying. I'm dying, dying. Like, I'm in trouble, trouble. We've been free from sin's penalty, but we see that we're growing more to be, wow, I'm actually worse. Now, if you ever go home and the sun's beaming into your house, you go, hey, the air's pretty clean in here. What happens when you open the blinds? What do you always see in the air? All that nasty dust. Oh, it's in my lungs. Yippee skippy, right? So the, when you open the blinds, you see what really is there. Right? That's what the Christian life is like. The closer you get to the Lord, you go, man, I'm just full of specks. I mean, everywhere. Man. Robert Murray Machane said it this way. The nearer you take anything to the light, the darker its spots will appear. The nearer you live to God, the more you will see your own utter vileness. But friends, here's the good news of 1 John. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Second thing, we are most to be pitied. Look at verse 18. Paul just, again, he, he keeps going further. If these things are true. He's talking about those who've fallen asleep. This means believers. We call believers people who've fallen asleep because they're going to be raised again. So it's, it's like they're napping in the tomb. They're going to wake up. They're going to wake up, right? It's as if they're just napping. But Paul's saying if Jesus hasn't been risen, then no, they're, they're dead. They're like an animal. They're just dead. No forgiveness of sins now, no resurrection later. If Christ is dead, we have no hope. What a miserable life to only think that this is it. This is as good as life gets. Do you watch the news? If you're not a believer, this is as good as it gets. And it's not very good. Suffering, emptiness, vanity, death, Die, done. Just imagine someone saying that they're going on vacation, but their, their ticket expired. But I'm still going to go on vacation. But your ticket expired. I'm still going to go. I don't think you know what you're saying. You don't have a ticket. If Christ is dead, we don't, we don't have a ticket. We're just, we missed it, right? Look at verse 19. This is one of the most profound verses, I think, in all of the New Testament. I'll be up front. I think this is one of the most amazing things I've ever read in the Bible. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, all, we are of all people most to be pitied. Is there anything worse than living a lie? A known lie? Friends, if Christianity is, if it just ends here, we are a miserable bunch of people, aren't we? Poor Christians. Just can't figure it out. We're a laughing stock. We're a joke. Right? Consider the life of the apostles, all the suffering and trials and imprisonment and threatenings and beatings and running around, all that for nothing? Pick a new job. Go to Home Depot. They're probably hiring, Paul. 
Instead, he wanted to suffer. Pick whatever religion you like if Christ is still dead. It doesn't matter. They're all going to the same place. Friends, if there is a resurrection, we should be pitied most of all. If he's not been raised for us to have comfort, who cares? But if Christ has been raised, we cannot relax while others die in their sins. We must not throw away our lives and live a life that is pitiful. This verse should strike a match within you. The ultimate wasted life, I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to waste it for Christ. I don't want to do that. This is just simple truth that warms our hearts. We don't need profound things. We need simple things, right? If Jesus is alive, Christianity matters more than you've ever thought. Do you want your life to count for the gospel? That's the question. Do you want your life to count for Christ? Kelly's dad's a pastor. Um, he's retired, but he's a pastor in Indiana. There's someone from his church who was at the supermarket, and she, uh, uh, she was an elderly lady. She had a chance to share the gospel with, with the uh, clerk, and she missed it. She's like, oh, man, I blew that. So she went home, checked her receipt, saw the guy's name, wrote a letter, explained the gospel, put an envelope, and went to work and gave it to the guy. That's how you don't waste your life. We must pity, rather, those who reject the gospel. We're not pitied. We, pennies, we pity sinners. Our hearts must be moved towards them, right? I was a part of an evangelism group that went to Mardi Gras four or five years ago. I mean, miserable. This is, this is it. The peak. This is it right here. This is it. And not all of them are just monsters. They're just regular people who just want to get drunk and go home and feel fine. They're not all just a bunch of murderers and crazy. They're just regular people. But they're to be pitied should stir our hearts. Christians have every right to live a life of non-misery. To live only for this life is pitiful. It is a wasted life. It's like rearranging chairs on, on, on the Titanic. What are you doing? Who cares, right? But brothers, how sweet that we don't have hope just in this life. We are most rather to be envied. In Christ, there is fullness of joy. Everyone you see today, in this room and outside, will live forever, either in unceasing joy or unceasing anguish, either in, in increasing pleasure and glory for eternity or increasing death and sin. Because Christ has been raised, we have an invincible promise, right? To live is Christ, therefore, and to die is what? gain, right? It makes sense now. Christ has promised to be with you always. His spirit that raised him from the dead dwells in you. You have nothing to fear like I did at the gas station. Don't be like me. What would change in your life today if this is true? Rather, what will change in your life this week if Christ has been raised? We want to see the gospel set the world on fire, but how will this happen? Kevin Young says it this way. If we are to grab the next generation with the gospel, we must grab them with passion. And to grab them with passion, we must be gripped with it ourselves. The world needs to see Christians burning, not with self-righteous fury at the sliding morals in our country, but burning with passion for God. So has the resurrected Christ gripped you and create a passion 
for him in your heart. Let's pray.